This is Archive Atlanta, episode 211, Claremont Hotel. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. In this week's mini episode, we are talking about the Claremont Hotel. From its start as a high-end apartment in the Roaring Twenties, to the infamous Claremont Lounge, to its demise and its rebirth. This building is full of fascinating stories that you do not want to miss. Before we get into the building's construction, we need to learn about what's happening in Atlanta before it's commissioned to be built. The Roaring Twenties are exciting times. Women get the right to vote. We get radio. The population in Atlanta is booming. This is on the heels of World War I and the Spanish flu. So by 1920, Americans are really ready to celebrate, you know, life, freedom, prosperity, just life in general. The Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta begins publishing The City Builder. And then between 1925 and 1929, the city would enact a $1 million program to sell the city. I talked about this. It's called Forward Atlanta, has its own little episode. Um, But as part of this campaign, they built a new city hall. Um, There is a real interest in schools because they knew that good schools were going to lure people to live here. Um, They are just working on, you know, getting Atlanta to where they want it to be. So as part of this campaign, the city ends up bringing 169 firms that have moved to Atlanta And at the end of the initial run, the Chamber of Commerce says that 762 companies moved to Atlanta because of Forward Atlanta, and it created 17,000 jobs and $29 million to the local economy. To give you an idea of how the city grew during this time, Atlanta's 1910 population was 154,000. In 1920, it was 200,000. And by 1930, it was 270,000. And this was primarily white middle class. Many, many developers knew that the Forward Atlanta campaign was coming. Very similar idea to like how the Beltline, like they knew it was coming. So they predicted the need for housing. They bought land um, and they made plans. And Atlanta's property values were rising at this time. Streetcar lines were expanding. The accessibility to having a personal car became a reality for a lot of families, and this enabled them to move to other parts of the city. So something I mentioned in the Better Homes Movement episode, but apartment living in the 1920s was high-end and glamorous. Not the way that we talk about apartment dwellers today, which is you know another soapbox for another day, but most of Atlanta's 1920s apartment buildings were specifically for middle and upper middle class white families. The story of the Claremont begins with Jesse Lafayette Morrison, born in 1878 in Alabama. The 1910 census lists his occupation as bookmaker, but in 1920 and until his death in 1959, Morrison was in real estate. In 1924, local papers dubbed him an Atlanta capitalist, and in that article, they announced his new project, Bonaventure Arms Apartments, on the corner of Ponce de Leon and Bonaventure Avenues. Designed by architect Raymond Snow, built by Shelverton Builders, the $600,000 Georgian Revival-style Flemish Bond brick structure was going to have seven stories, 92 residences, hotel service, which they dubbed as domestic service without any annoyances of having to have servants, and elevators that would run at all hours of the day and private delivery of your packages. Finally completed in June of 1924, they had one-room, quote-unquote, bachelor apartments that were all grouped on the same floor to create a, quote-unquote, bachelor community, and all units in the entire um, building touted carpeted floors, which was 
does not sound appealing today, but that was actually a really kind of newfangled thing in that time. Ample auto storage was reached from the interior of the building in the back. And there was a woman named Mrs. Charles Murray who was actually a resident there and she also operated the dining room. So based on the names of the first listing in the city directories, Bonaventure Arms was home to doctors, prominent merchants, real estate men, so on and so forth. And similar to other apartment buildings along Ponce in this area, there were a handful of really prominent Jewish and Catholic residents as well. The bliss and the grandeur of the 1920s ended, of course, in 1929 with the stock market crash. And by July of 1930, Bonaventure Arms was in receivership and up for auction. And while it received a handful of bids, the only local Atlanta bidder coming in at 250000 was Briarcliff Investment Company, led by Asa Kaler Jr. He had been buying up many defunct apartment buildings around Atlanta, and his offer was approved. Now, we've talked about Candler a couple times, especially in episodes with uh, my friend Sarah. She's writing a book about him, so stay tuned. He is, of course, a character, um, but he was really, she talks about this, he was really always into real estate. That was always his thing. By June of 1939, Candler turns Bonaventure Arms into a hotel, the Claremont Hotel. And this is the first time we see the Claremont name associated with the building. So I tried to do a little bit of digging into the choice of Claremont. All I found was that Asa Jr. had a yacht named Claremont in that same year. So I don't know where he got it, but he did like it. So when he turns into a hotel, he invests $100,000 into the renovations, and now it created a building with 120 rooms, and he kept 34 as apartments. Now the front yard, which had previously been 15 feet below the sidewalk, was filled in and made level with the street, which is how it looks today, and then all of the tenants that had been in the building prior to this were asked to vacate. One of my favorite little stories from the hotel that I came across was in 1942 when movie star Clark Gable had volunteered in the Army Air Forces after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so there was like a week-long rumor that he's in Atlanta and everybody seems to have been, you know, seeing him like, oh, we saw him here. We saw him here. But he was spotted visiting friends at the Claremont Hotel and the press call the hotel for a statement and the operators are like very mum. They're like, mm, well, you know, if he's been here, we haven't seen him. All hotels in Atlanta had lounges at this time, and honestly, this research has really led me into having an entire episode about these lounges, but the Claremont was first home to the Anchorage Supper Club and later just the Anchorage Lounge. There are also mentions of the Gypsy Room, which is described in 1954 as being on the quote-unquote terrace level. In 1950, Asa Candler got into some major legal trouble with his cemetery, Westview Cemetery, and there was a little bit of conspiring that he was going to sell the Claremont and all of his other hotel holdings so that his company would be insolvent and unable to pay restitution charges. This did not happen because when Candler died in 1953, he was still the owner of the Claremont Hotel. In 1954, it was sold to Claremont Properties, Inc., which was an organization led by O. Ray Moore for $350,000. And at the same exact time, they entered into a 20-year lease with someone named W.J. Folsom that seemed to be the operator of the hotel. And part of his plan included renovations and brand new furniture. In 1958, it was purchased by Glenn Loudermilk, who previously managed the Imperial Hotel um, down on Patriot Street. 
So the anchorage was open well into the 1960s, but in 1962, things changed just a little bit. And this is when Atlanta's Playboy Club opened early that year. And now I'm just going to bust your bubble right up front. I am 99.9% sure this was not an official Playboy Club. So at first I found this, I like jumped out of my chair. I'm like, oh my God, the Claremont, you know, had the first Playboy Club. And after careful review with my history nerd consortium, with this mainly just me and Liz texting, we've determined that they were illegally using the Playboy name. Two things gave this away. So official Playboy International Clubs had keys for members. Um, You needed your membership card to get in. And they never included nudity. Now, the Atlanta Playboy Club was open to all. It had no membership, clearly advertised in the paper. And its first performance featured Cleopatra, described as a interpretive dancer. Does interpretive dancer mean stripper? Maybe. But really soon after this, um, the Playboy Club is also promoting exotic dancing. Now, it was able to stay open as the Atlanta Playboy Club until September of 1963, when all ads and all references immediately disappear from the paper. And what happens in December of 1963? So three months later, huge announcement of the opening of an official Playboy Club at the Dinkler in downtown Atlanta. Did they get a cease and desist? I don't know. It didn't make the papers, but something definitely went down. The first mention of the Claremont Motor Hotel, which is the vintage sign that's out front, has that name. I found that in 1964, so sometime in the 60s it changed over. Um, But even throughout the 60s, the hotel at this point had started to become the center of prostitution stings. There was some racketeering and gambling bust. There were general vice raids. In January of 1967, a liquor license permit was pulled for something called the Jungle Club. Now, that name never materialized, but instead, just a month later, the Claremont Lounge opened on February 15th, 1967, with a cocktail hour from 5 to 8 p.m., advertising no cover and free parking. Wade Krieger appears to be the manager and it a long time act. So Wade Krieger had an orchestra, he had a trio, he had a duo, he had performed in many lounges across Atlanta, but he really stayed with the Claremont Lodge for a very long time. Into the late 60s, there's also advertisements for dance music and go-go girls. Glenn Loudermilk was still operating and living in the Claremont Hotel when he died there in 1979. The Claremont Lounge continued on. It was raided in the early 80s when Atlanta was cracking down on new dancing. By the 1980s, rooms were also rentable on a daily and maybe hourly basis. Lots of stories from that time that aren't all going to fit into the short episode, but I think a lot of people out there today know some of them. In 2009, health inspectors finally shut down the Claremont because of disrepair, um, health, and safety hazards. When it was purchased in 2012, there's a Curbed Atlanta article that describes it as having rusted plumbing, broken kitchenettes, dingy carpet, and lots of hypodermic needles. It would take six years, construction delays, general construction, but the fully restored and renovated Claremont Hotel opened in 2018 as a boutique hotel. And Tiny Lou's, the restaurant opened inside, a nod to a dancer with that same name that um, performed in one of the lounges. 
The Claremont Lounge has remained a staple. It's still going strong today. The rooftop has a bar with an amazing view. And if you've never been, I highly recommend it. So I've been to Tiny Lou's. I've been to the roof. I have not stayed there. And here is my public confession. I have never been to the Claremont Lounge. I have been in Atlanta for 17 years and I have never been to the Claremont Lounge. So maybe 2023 is my year. If you, if you want to, maybe we can get a big group together. We can go. So there you have it, the story of the Claremont Hotel. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. There is a Patreon link in the show notes as well if you want to support the work. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.